We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. The baseball season is go, go, go. It's nonstop, relentless for every night, six straight months, and then hopefully another month in October. You also have work, friends, family, and a million other things going on. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. I mean, the mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when your beer is cold. Is there anything better than opening up your refrigerator after a long day, seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge? The answer is no, there's nothing better. That's why when it's time to chill, you choose Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another history edition of the Bronx Pinstripe Show, the third installment. First one was MLB Shortened Seasons. The second one was how George Steinbrenner bought the Yankees. And today's episode, we're going to be talking about the transition from Buck Walter to Joe Torre in the winter of 1995 and how that all went down and why it went down. I was interested in this because that is when I really started to become a baseball fan. That's when I was old enough to understand what was happening on the field. 
knowing that the Yankees lost in 1995, being excited that the Yankees were winning in 1996. Those are really my first memories of watching baseball. And Joe Torre, for the longest time, was the only manager of the team that I knew. But prior to his hiring, Buck Showalter had some success with the Yankees, and he was on a trajectory. He was on a trajectory to the World Series, and it just so happened that Joe Torre came in and finished the job that he started. But what really went down in those in that negotiation, in the firing, in the departure, let's call it? The story, I guess, starts with Buck Showalter as a Yankee. One thing that I was surprised to learn, I don't know why I didn't know this, I should have known this, is that Buck was a Yankee lifer up until the point in 1995 when he left. He was signed in 1977 by the Yankees out of Mississippi State and remained with the organization all the way through 95. He spent seven years in the minors as an outfielder and first baseman, was never able to really make the jump to the majors. But he was obviously interested in coaching, and he rose up the coaching and managerial ranks. His first position with the Yankees was with Class A Onionta. I believe I said that right. It's in New York, and it is, uh, it's where he spent two years. And then Class A Fort Lauderdale for two years. Then he moved up to Double A for a year with Albany. And then in 1990, he was promoted to the Yankees as an, quote, eye-in-the-sky scout. That is what one article described it as. Could not really find out more details about what he did in 1990. But it only took him two years to be promoted to Yankees manager. So that's pretty quick going from Class A all the way up to Yankees manager in a pretty short amount of time. Short amount of time for then. Now you don't have to have any managerial experience. You can just get the job. Aaron Boone went from playing to ESPN booth to boom managing the team. So it's different now, but back then it it seems like it was a pretty uh, quick and steep rise. But before he took over, the four-year period before Showalter took over as manager was the worst in Yankees history as far as winning percentage goes. They had a 445 win percentage. Attendance dropped 35% and the TV ratings were awful. But you can kind of look to 1990 and call that a turning point for the organization. As I mentioned, Buck Showalter starts working for the major league team But also, this is the time when Steinbrenner receives his lifetime ban from baseball for hiring Howie Spira to ruin Dave Winfield's reputation, which I feel like I could do a whole history episode on Steinbrenner's suspensions, which I sort of mentioned in in last week's episode. But this is a time that the organization starts to turn around. We know it didn't end up being a lifetime suspension, but it was a suspension for a lengthy amount of time. And in that time, Gene Stick Michael, who was the general manager, was able to run the organization with more freedom. He was able to focus on player development, more resources in the draft. He kept young players. He did not trade away young prospects, which was a George Steinbrenner special. And when Showalter was promoted in 1992, the Yankees finished fourth that year. Not great, but they quickly started to improve. Then they finished second in 1993, first in the strike shortened 1990 four season he actually won man al manager of the year in 1994 and then in 1995 they finished second but it was they made their first playoff appearance they were the wild card team it was their first playoff appearance since 1981 he managed 582 games with the yankees 
Amazingly, that was the most continuous games for a manager under George Steinbrenner prior to Joe Torre. Yes, uh, Billy Martin managed more total games, but continuous games without being fired. And his record in that time was 313 and 268 for a 539 win percentage. All good stuff. There was a direction to the team. They were on a rise, really starting in 1994 and 1995. They were on a rise up. You could see where the team was going. But as we know, that was not enough to satisfy George Steinbrenner. I'm disappointed more for the young players on our team than I am for myself. You know, I've had the pleasure. I know how it feels to win. I know how it feels to lose. This is a clip of George Steinbrenner talking to Michael Kay right outside the Yankees clubhouse after the 95 ALDS anybody loss. Anybody had to lose this series or this game, Michael, but uh, our kids I'm very proud of. They fought, they fought, they fought. Uh, we missed our chances which is, you know, part of sports, part of competition. We had chances to put this game away, and we just didn't do it. We certainly had chances last night ahead by five runs, and we couldn't hold it. So, uh, you know, give credit where credit's due, but, but remember our kids because they battled. Georgia, I know that this is a disappointing time for you, and you say you go to work tomorrow. The big questions a lot of New Yorkers have, What's the fate of Buck Showalter? What's the fate of Gene Michael? Also, Mattingly and Boggs. Can you address those? It's, it's difficult to address that now. I mean, this, this is a very difficult time. Everybody is very down, and uh, I'm not even going to talk about that. We'll, we'll start looking at everything tomorrow and where we're going, what we're going to do for next year. But we'll be back. I guarantee you that. We'll be back. We just, uh, maybe you could say we just didn't have enough. Probably the way to say it in the end, but... Boy, our guys gave a great effort, a hell of an effort. Now I'm going. Okay. All right, thank you, George. All right, Michael. George Steinbrenner here outside the Yankee locker room, gracious enough to join us after a very tough loss for the Yankees. And back to you, Bob and Rick, in the studio in New York. Michael, as is sometimes the case with Mr. Steinbrenner, it's almost more interesting to read between the lines. If it was such a great season and he's so proud of the Yankees, why don't you come out and tell us that you want your manager to come back? Why don't you come out and tell us that you want your captain to come back? Absolutely. He had the chance right there. He decided to sidestep the question. He's, he's pretty good at that. This was the time to say, I want Buck Showalter back. I want Gene Michael back. Uh, I think that was a pretty positive sign about Mattingly. He didn't just dismiss it, uh, but he didn't say, I definitely want him back if Mattingly wants to come back. So a lot of answers still out there, hanging out there in the midst of a very tough Yankee loss. As had been the norm with high-profile losses, major sweeping changes would follow. And I love what that reporter did coming back to Michael Kay saying, if you're Steinbrenner and you're so proud of your guys, why not come out and say you want to keep your manager? But he couldn't say it. The boss couldn't say it, even after how he was so proud of how his guys fought. And it's not like the Yankees got demolished by the Mariners in the 95 ALDS. It's a classic series. Classic from a baseball standpoint. Yankees fans don't like to rewatch it, but if you go look at MLB Network and what's being talked about on social media, a lot of those games are replayed because they were so competitive. The total runs scored in the series was 35 for Seattle and 33 for the Yankees. So it was a very, very close series. The Yankees just lost a close series to an arguably better team at the time. I, I don't think you can say anything more to it than that, but that's not how things go with Steinbrenner. So what happened? Showalter would end up being replaced as manager, although he was not fired. GM Stick Michael, who helped rebuild the Yankees into the future dynasty of the 90s, was replaced with Bob Watson. Apparently, Steinbrenner and Michael had contract disputes after the 94-95 strike, and that's why he was replaced as general manager. And Bob Watson, he had a brief period uh, of his post-playing 
days as an MLB executive for a few different teams, but I did find this fun fact in reading a little bit about him. Watson is credited with scoring the one millionth run in Major League Baseball history on Sunday, May 4th, 1975. So he can hang that on his hat in addition to the 96 championship. But how did it all go down? How did Showalter's time with the Yankees end? His contract was set to expire at the end of October. He reportedly turned down a two-year $1.05 million contract because he was negotiating for three years. But Steinbrenner never made him another offer other than that two years, $1.05 million. Steinbrenner apparently did not see it that they were in a negotiation, so there's miscommunication there. The Yankees issued a statement prior to Game 5 of the 95 World Series, which was Braves versus Indians, that Showalter had departed the Yankees organization, quote, under amicable terms. This was news to Showalter. He was blindsided. He actually found out about this from his wife, who had heard about it from a reporter who called their house. So Showalter wasn't home when this statement was released to the public, and he had to find out through a game of telephone from his wife. Pretty amazing. In the statement, Steinbrenner said that Showalter declined to meet on two key issues. Number one was the length of his contract, which, yes, Showalter wanted three years and Steinbrenner was only offering him two years, and also the coaching staff. And that turns out to be where the real issue lied. According to Showalter, those were untrue and he was never asked to meet again. The part that he was claiming was untrue wasn't that they disagreed on some things, but it was that he was ever asked to meet again. There, there was no, no negotiation that was going on. It was take, a take-it-or-leave-it offer from Steinbrenner, but that's not how he understood it to be. In the statement was also this quote, which I, I found, I don't know, funny slash terrifying reading it because it, it really reminds me of something somebody else who's in charge of our country might say. Steinbrenner said in the statement, We tried, but were unable to dissuade Buck. I have nothing but praise for Buck and his job he did for us. And I told him I was very upset by his leaving. I wish Buck and his fine little family nothing but the best. There will be no criticism of Buck in any way from me. That describes how it went down, but why did it go down? A bigger issue than the money and length of the contract, which I I think could have been figured out, was the coaching staff and the fact that Steinbrenner wanted control. He wanted to control the puppet strings, and Showalter was pushing back. Steinbrenner wanted hitting coach Rick Down gone, but Showalter was trying to stand up for his coaches. They apparently disagreed the entire 95 season. As far back as July of that year, Steinbrenner wanted to fire Down and first base coach Brian Butterfield. Showalter talked him out of it at that time, and he was still trying to gain control over his coaching staff in the offseason, in preparation for the 96 season. I tried to figure out why why does Steinbrenner want Rick Down gone so bad? I don't know, maybe he had a personal issue with him, but as far as how the Yankees performed on the field, they weren't the best offense in the league, but they were very competitive, good enough to, to be in the playoffs. Among American League teams, the 95 Yankees offense ranked sixth in runs per game, and they were above league average in batting average, on-base percentage, and OPS. So it wasn't very clear that you could point to the hitting or Rick Down as a key issue here. But Down was fired after the 95 season, and then in classic Steinbrenner fashion, rehired later down the road in 2003, and then fired again when they had a difficult World Series loss. But back to Buck. Letting Showalter go seemed like an overreaction at the time. Seemed like 
Steinbrenner wanted to be the big man on campus and he was in kind of a a petty pissing match with Showalter over some things. And he let that get in the way of who was going to be the manager of the Yankees. And maybe Steinbrenner realized his mistake just a few days later because he ended up trying to rehire Showalter. More on that in a few minutes. But what happened? He ended up falling ass backwards into Joe Torre. It just didn't seem like a home run at first. It seemed at first like that was going to be a mistake. On November 2nd, it was officially announced that Joe Torre was hired as the Yankees manager. To that point, Torre's managerial record was 894 and 1003 over 14 seasons with the Braves, Mets, and the Cardinals. Torre was actually originally interviewed for the GM job. And I watched an interview he did years later, even after he was with the Yankees, after he had already retired from being a manager, where he said the reason he turned it down was because he asked what the vacation policy was, and there was no vacation, and that wasn't going to work out for him. In reality, he turned it down because he had never been a GM to that point in his life, never has been a GM at all, and he didn't want to do that. So that job ended up going to Bob Watson. But what Steinbrenner did is he spun the Tory hiring as being unanimous in the organization as their choice for the next Yankees manager. In reality, Tory was the last choice for the job. They were also looking at candidates Davey Johnson, Sparky Anderson, and Tony LaRussa. They were looking at some internal candidates, but I think they were looking to go outside of the organization based on things that were written at the time. But when the Tory hiring was announced, there was confusion for a few different reasons. The, the first one being, as we've already discussed, the departure from Showalter came out of nowhere. But just think about the team at that time. They were on the rise. They appeared in the playoffs for the first time since 1981, and they just hired a manager whose career record is 109 games under 500. How do you sell that to a public? How do you sell that to your fan base saying, this is our choice to take the team that you just saw almost go to where you want them to go, almost get to the championship, this is the guy to take you over the top. It was a really hard sell. After news broke that Torrey accepted the job, Watson was also still talking to reporters like he was looking at candidates. So it's out there that Torrey accepted the job as Yankees manager, but here you have the general manager talking to reporters as if the, the search is ongoing. So it was just weird overall. I think the cherry on top was the fact that Steinbrenner did not attend Torrey's opening news conference as Yankees manager. The overall sentiment was that the Yankees have no idea what they're doing, and Torrey has no idea what he's getting himself into. Torrey was liked, and he had experience with the New York media because he managed the Mets from 1977 to 81. So the media liked him. They just didn't think he was qualified for the job. And the backlash started immediately. Everyone has probably heard of or seen the Clueless Joe Daily News headline. Here is a clip of an interview with Mad Dog Russo that Tory did fairly recently about it. When you got the Yankee job, uh, you know, it, did it bother you in 1995? Did it bother you, that uh, even me, that, you know, Clueless Joe, the back pages of the papers, and, you know, you had been looked at as a, I hate to say this, but uh, to you I can say it as a losing manager, which probably wasn't fair. Did those headlines spur you on? Did it bother you when you got to New York there in 1995? You know, it, it really didn't. Uh, I was living in Cincinnati at the time, uh, and I was told about the headlines, obviously. But I understood. I mean, I, I knew who was on that short list of uh, possibilities, and 
you know, it was Tony Larusa, and he had just taken the St. Louis job at, and then you had Davey Johnson, who was going, you know, Baltimore. He was committed to Baltimore, and Sparky, uh, who had retired. And I mean, again, I my, I was a hundred games under 500 as a manager, and you you know that's, you know, that really is maybe not an indication of what kind of manager you are, but that's what you base your opinion on, and I. It really didn't bother me. I felt the Yankees, uh, Chris, that this was a bonus for me. Okay, so maybe Torrey was pretty good at blocking out all the haters, but the hate went pretty deep. Listen to this by Mike Lupica, who absolutely tore apart the Yankees in an article in the Daily News. Torrey was the favorite choice by the Confederacy of Dunces running the Yankees office in Tampa, even before Bob Watson was hired as general manager. Torrey went to the top of the list once the Braves swept Davy Johnson's Reds in the NLCS because Steinbrenner is the phoniest frontrunner of all time. I mean, damn. <laughs> damn, that hits hard. Cashman has also talked about what he remembers from that time. He said their fax machine in the office was being flooded with angry messages from fans. And if you want an idea of the mood surrounding this hire... Listen to this. It's, a, it's taken from a New York Times article written by George Vesey on November 3rd of 95. The real question is, who's next in this Yankees manager business? My own sense of the coming Yankee chronology is Willie Randolph, Don Mattingly, Chris Chambliss, Newt Gingrich. Although, come to think of it, has anyone ever seen George and Newt in the same place at the same time? Daryl Strawberry, Arthur Richmond, Rick Down. George often does have a penance for ugly words and deeds. Art Fowler, David Letterman, Dwight Gooden, Pee Wee Herman, Nathaniel Showalter. The owner does admire Buck's, quote, nice little family. Susan Waldman, Mookie Wilson, Andrew Giuliani, and Lenny Dykstra. George has this terrible case of Met Envy. That takes us to about 1998. I see Bill Bradley managing the Jersey Yankees. Instead of hearing old Sinatra croaking New York, New York, we hear Springsteen's glory days. George doesn't get the irony. By then, Joe Torre's managing somewhere else. If Steinbrenner can go on and on, why not Torrey? There's so much packed into those two paragraphs. The buffoonery that was Steinbrenner hiring and firing so many different managers. The fact that the Yankees might move to New Jersey, which I don't think was ever going to happen in the 90s, but I think the, the, the author was just making a point. But who would have imagined where the organization was about to go? But of course, with the Yankees, there's a twist. And this full story didn't come out until years later, but it was first reported in December of 1995 that Steinbrenner actually tried to rehire Showalter just 72 hours after coming to an agreement with Joe Torre. At the time, Steinbrenner would not discuss it and Showalter would not admit to it, but it did happen. So let me set the scene. Steinbrenner and Showalter's agent were flying down to Florida, which is where Buck lived, and they called Buck's house to give him a heads up that they were coming, except the only problem was Buck was not home. He was in Phoenix talking to Jerry Colangelo, the owner of the Diamondbacks, about becoming their manager of the expansion franchise. And that job would start in late 1995 because they needed to build the team. He was going to be very involved in the early stages of building the Diamondbacks. He was actually really excited about this. He didn't actually sign anything in that meeting, but he did come to an agreement that he would accept the job. So Buck's wife, Angela, got the call at home that Steinbrenner was on his way, and she was obviously shocked. She was trying to get in touch with Showalter, 
He was on a plane, so he wasn't able to receive the news until his layover in Texas. And when he finally did, he basically said, okay, you're going to have to entertain them until I come home. So Angela and the kids go pick up Steinbrenner at the airport. Why George couldn't arrange for a car to drive him to the Showalter's home, I have no clue. Seems like maybe he was just trying to assert his dominance over the situation. Whatever. So he's at the Showalter's home eating. They talked, the article I read talked about them eating shrimp cocktail and like Showalter's kids climbing all, all around the room. It was like, I had imagine a, a pretty hectic scene. But when Buck finally arrived home, Steinbrenner laid out his grand plan to bring him back into the organization. Obviously, there was Joe Torrey, who had already accepted the job. Steinbrenner said, I'll figure out a role for him. I'll give him a desk job. That would have been a disaster. I'm assuming Joe Torrey would have quit immediately. And who knows what would have happened. But Showalter strongly considered it. He talked it over with his agent, but he ended up deciding to honor his word to Colangelo and take the Diamondbacks job. Of course, Steinbrenner was not happy. He thought he was going to go waltz down to Florida and win Buck back. But that's not how it went down. Think about the timeline here, though. So October 31st, Joe Torre accepts the Yankees job. From October 31st to November 1st, reports are starting to surface and negative articles are written about the hiring. November 2nd, there's an official announcement that Joe Torre is hired as Yankees manager. Fans are irate. The media writes the Clueless Joe headlines and all that kind of stuff. Everyone's freaking out. What does Steinbrenner do? He gets cold feet, he panics, he needs to go to visit Showalter to try and rehire him to smooth everything over. So that's sort of the timeline, and you can see how Steinbrenner is just reacting and overreacting to different things that are coming out. But it was very hard for Showalter to turn down this offer, because the Yankees were the only organization he knew. From 1977, when he was drafted, all the way through 1995, the Yankees were the only organization he knew. And... He was finally moving on. He was finally leaving leaving the parents' house, I guess is the analogy. And as we know, it obviously worked out for the Yankees and Joe Torre, who went on to manage the Yankees for the next 12 seasons to a 605 winning percentage, six pennants, and four World Series titles. In my opinion, Torre's greatest strength as a manager was his ability to control personalities and manage the room. The reason dynasties are so rare in sports today, I think, are because superstars have egos. And when a team starts to win, the room gets a lot of superstars together, things can go wrong. It's very rare in sports to have championship after championship for, for that very reason. Torrey was able to keep that room together from 1996. Let's call it through 2003 when they were still advancing to the World Series. Things got, I think, in my opinion, out of control starting in 2004 with all the free agents that were brought in and the constant turnover. But that's another discussion for another time. Showalter ended up managing the Diamondbacks. He helped build that franchise starting in 1996, leading up to 1998, which was their first season when the league expanded. He actually managed them to the playoffs a year later in 1999, but he was fired after the 2000 season. They took a pretty big step back between 99 and 2000 as far as wins go. I read an article where Colangelo said the biggest reason that they moved on from Buckshaw Walter was because it was a personality mismatch. They also may have given him a little bit too much control over players as far as who to trade, who to keep. And it just, they decided to move on. But you cannot deny what he built there. 
Think about this. In 2001, he watched the Yankees and the Diamondbacks play in the World Series. That had to be gut-wrenching for him. He endured the hardships of the early 90s Yankees and then was not there for all the success. And then he helped build the Diamondbacks starting in 1995-1996, endured some hardships, got them to a point where they were right there, and then they go on to win a World Series. So Buck, the, the very narrow misses in his career are astounding. Steinbrenner came out smelling like roses in all of this. He had averaged one managerial change per year of his ownership, 22 changes in 22 years to through 1995, but he finally stuck with the manager. He stuck with Joe Torre for 12 years, and it's because of all the success, because there are rumors that had the Yankees lost to the Braves in 1996, Torre could have been fired. I don't know if that would have happened. It seemed like something at the time George Steinbrenner would have done. There are so many what-ifs to this story. Do the Yankees win the World Series in 1996 if Buck gets rehired? Do they go on to win four out of five championships with Buck? Do the Diamondbacks turn into a legit franchise so quickly if they don't have Buck Showalter? So you can kind of play out the what-if scenarios if one or two things changed here. I mean, Joe Torre is certainly not thought of today as a Hall of Fame manager without the Yankees job. He, he probably never would have gotten another job and he would have finished his career under 500. He would have been the guy that played and managed more games to never go to the World Series of anyone in history. That was his legacy before the Yankees. And Buck Showalter, he's managed a lot of different teams and a lot of them have been competitive. Obviously, the Yankees and the Diamondbacks and then the Rangers, they were not great, but they found success pretty soon after he left. And then the Orioles, he got them to the playoffs a few years and his legacy in Baltimore is not using Zach Britton in the wildcard game. So it's kind of interesting, Buck's career. No one's doubting his, his ability to manage a baseball game, but he seems like there's just something off with him that things don't go right for his teams, or he doesn't, or he gets ousted right before the success really happens. Who knows if he's going to get another job? We'll see. Uh, I, I thought this was a really interesting story. I didn't know all the full details of how this went down. Like I said, I was seven years old in 1995 when Buck Showalter was, uh, when the transition was happening from Showalter to Tory. I didn't know what was going on. I just, I just knew who Derek Jeter was. That's basically all I knew in 1996. Um, I'm sure a lot of people out there listening were a little bit older than me. They remember all the details from this story. It'd be, I, I think there's some revisionist history. People think, oh, of course they moved on from Buck Showalter to Joe Torre. Joe Torre is one of the, considered one of the best managers in in Yankees history. Why wouldn't you do that? But that's not how it was received at the time. So um, obviously opinions change based on results, but I'm sure the opinions back then were different than they were just a few years later. So I hope you guys enjoyed the third episode of this little history thing I'm doing. I think I'm going to continue doing it as long as we don't have baseball. Even if baseball does come back, I'll, I'll keep sticking with it. Tweet me your ideas. Uh, send me a DM at Andrew underscore Rotondi. If you have an idea you want me to, uh, to look into and do an episode on, definitely let me know. I have a few more in the hopper, but um, I'm definitely open to, to new ideas. I hope everyone is enjoying these while, uh, while we're stuck inside. I hope everyone's staying safe, staying healthy, staying smart about it, social distancing and all that. And uh, keep, keep staying tuned to the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Thanks for listening, guys. 
The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com